Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Standing by, the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by the UPS Store Canada. Web, we're back. Season five of Standing By, the Terry and Ted podcast. Season five, you know what that means? What? We've officially had a longer run than Mork and Mindy. (laughs) (laughs) I looked it up. There was was only four seasons of Mork and Mindy. (laughs) Did you research that? Yeah. Well, stick with me for more 45 year old (laughs) popular culture references. It's the Standing By podcast. Thank goodness. Um, And we're recording this. Two years to the day that I was pushed out the door at Shome. So at, really, yes. Yeah, so we well, two years yesterday. Okay. Um, and um, this gives me something to do. Yeah. And I enjoy doing it. So I'm glad we're back. And you know what else? What? Fuck them. <laughs> That's what else. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I uh, I echo that uh, sentiment. Yeah. Um, we're uh, back, courtesy of uh, all our friends and supporters. Uh, because, as I've said before on the podcast, it involves a little bit of expense, especially for a guy that lives on the West Coast. So we cannot thank our sponsors enough, and we're going to start by uh, thanking our title sponsor, David Drucker and the folks at the UPS Store Canada, um, which has long been a go-to for me and my wife, especially since we moved out to the West Coast. They're shipping things back and forth, but the UPS Store does more than just Shipping. If you run a small business, they can help you run that small business. A locally owned guy in your community who's also running his own business, the UPS Store Canada, can help you with printing, packaging, shipping, passports, ID photos. He can shred for you. Uh, She can shred for you. They're often owned by families who live in your community and know how to help you run your small business. So everything from documents that need printing, uh, documents that need signing and shipping, uh, to shipping something really fragile, they can pack it for you. When uh, Jess and I moved out of Montreal and got our way to BC, uh, we took advantage of all of uh, the uh, facilities they had at the UPS store in Canada and still rely on them. There are over... 350 locations across the country. Just Google the UPS Store Canada, find the one near you, and they will help you run your business or get those cookies to grandma. Their website is theupsstore.ca. And we thank David Drucker and the folks at the UPS Store Canada uh, for being our title sponsor. Now, uh, we uh, have uh, on episode two a guest. And we're quite excited about the guests because we've tried to have Dave on before. I used to have Dave on once in a while. Whenever a hockey story broke uh, over the course of the years uh, at the radio station, I would inevitably call Dave early in the morning and uh, say, Dave, can you come on and talk about whatever it was? Dave Stubbs, uh, 
who wrote for the uh, Gazette for uh, many years and the News and Chronicle on the West Island and uh, is now employed by the National Hockey League as our guest. Dave, thank you for coming. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Um, since you said Shom, I'm going to say that the last time we sat down across microphones from one another was 17 years ago when I was launching a young reader's book on the history of hockey. And wow. we sat in the studio wow. and you guys were very generous. You were very gracious and you helped me sell both copies of the book. <laughs> so, so thank you. You and I have that. chatted more recently than that on the radio, Dave, when the uh, Light 1067 studio was in Point Claire Plaza, which is right near where you live. You came by and I believe you might have come by wearing a Rogie Vachon jersey. Is that possible? <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> yeah. Rogie was Rogie was and remains in a lot of ways my guy. He was my first hockey crush, if you will, as a kid growing up in Montreal. And when he was traded to the Los Angeles Kings on the 4th of November, 1971, not that it's burned in my brain, uh, <laughs> I probably cried myself to sleep because when you're traded to Los Angeles pre-internet, I mean, you may yeah. as well be traded to the dark side of Neptune Yeah, because there were no hockey summaries in the paper the next day. You never saw anything at all. So anyway, I was sort of the lone wolf baying at the moon to get Rogie into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I thought that given his contemporaries, the, na the numbers that he had, his stats, they all stacked up very favorably. And in 2016, Rogi was elected to the Hall of Fame. I think I was happier than he was. And uh, one of the great memories that I will always cherish was that he came to Montreal the night before he went up to Toronto for his, uh, for his induction ceremonies. He changed his flight and we flew together from Montreal to Toronto uh, into Billy Bishop Airport at Toronto Island for his induction. And as we're heading into the airport, Rogi had never been into Billy Bishop before. And no, oh. you, you go in there. Oh, boy. So yeah. he's going in, and Toronto's getting larger and larger outside the window. And he finally turns to me and said, there's an airport down here, right? And so <laughs> I just looked at him. I hope so. <laughs> is Billy Bishop the island airport? Yeah, that they used the to call and, the and island the lower airport. and lower yeah. and lower and lower you get – it's still water. It's yeah. water, like, like it's, Boston, it, going into Boston Logan, yeah, same thing, right? it's water until you get right to the edge of touchdown. <laughs> so if you don't know it, you'd yeah. be looking out the window I, going, Tap Yeah, we're ditching. <laughs> yeah. I think that Rogie's fingernails are still in the seat ahead <laughs> of the flight. So, uh, yeah, so Rogie would have been the jersey that I would have worn when I came to visit you that morning. David, one of the things that I've always loved about you is you have such a beautiful writing style, and and... You can evoke such great emotion, you know, all the way back to your columns. I always looked forward to reading it when you were with the Gazette. And I'd like to go back to the the start of, of you being raised on the West Island, your involvement with the News and Chronicle. And specifically, I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, that teacher who inspired you that every time you talk about him, I cry <laughs> because it's such a wonderful and emotional story. And I think a great story for anybody who's considering pursuing a writing career. Gordon Blackman was my grade 10 English teacher, and I thought that I was F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway, and anybody who went all rolled into one until I would turn in a composition and I would get some horrible grade, and I would go in and yell and scream at him after class, and we would sit and he would work with me. And uh, he was absolutely an inspiration uh, in my life, certainly. He was the most influential person in my writing career. He just really stirred in me, I think, the soul of a writer. It sounds pretty corny, but I mean, he really did. I mean, I didn't know necessarily what I was going to do with my life. Um, at grade 10, who does, right? But my dad was in radio at the time. He worked in Montreal radio for many, many years. And I thought I would follow him into radio. And I did for a time. 
But uh, the written word certainly had a great appeal. So um, Gordon Blackman was the gentleman who kind of stirred in me um, the wish to write. And the more I spent time thinking about it, uh, I was just very lucky that all the stars were in the right part of the sky. In the summer of 19... I went to Sejep Junior College here in Montreal, and I was between years, and I was working at old Fox Radio, may it rest in peace, yeah. in Point Claire, and uh, working in the production department overnight, spinning a disco show on Saturday nights. Oh, Lord, that was awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Yeah, but I, all these years later, I kind of like it, yeah. and I'm willing to admit yeah. it. You yeah. know, when I hear an old 70s disco True. song, come True. on, yeah. what was I don't name? hate it anymore. What was yeah. the name of the show, Fox it was something? CFO Express was the oh, name of the show. Express. And I knew that no one was listening when I started an extended play of uh, Donna Summers' Love to Love You Baby, which, as we know, is about eight minutes of you yeah. know what, right? And anyway, I started the thing, went downstairs to the Hymas Tavern to get myself a club sandwich, came up the record, it got about 90 seconds in, it was skipping. Oh, no. <laughs> and so you just hear, oh, I love the... It occurred to me that no one was listening to this show because there was nothing on the look. Look it up because if if you don't know what Dave's referring to, when we were kids in high school, it was titillating. Oh, it was because it was uh, that song. Yeah, Yeah. she she, it was it was a feigned orgasm at the at the start of the a start of the record, which was back in that time and era on the radio was scandalous scandalous is the word yeah so no one finally within the next week or so no one could segue from uh rock the boat by george mccray to hold out a love by led zeppelin better than yours truly right so i brought in my own album that's quite a diverse playlist it is george benson (laughs) and the zeppelin (laughs) it is i'll tell you and in fact i I was at seafox when that station changed formats about six times during the the eight months i was there and I actually produced for one short summer some of Ted Teven's sports rap. Uh, and uh, Ted found a whole stack of country music records outside the women's washroom one day and said, let's have some fun. So we went out in the parking lot. He soaked them down a lighter fluid, and we threw flaming Frisbees across the parking lot <laughs> towards the Kmart. <laughs> so so that's, that'll be in my book one day. <laughs> so, yeah, and it wound up. My mother saw a, a classified ad for the, in the News and Chronicle. They were looking for a sports editor, someone who was willing to work for no money uh, and would work insanely long hours, and I applied. Uh, got the job, and I was the sports editor of the News and Chronicle starting in January of 76. Six a months later, I'm covering pa- the Montreal Olympics. Was, yeah, it was a West Island local paper, and it, yeah. and it, it in its day, in its heyday, it, it did really well. It was terrific. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, was a great it was little a newspaper. Great, a great community newspaper, yeah. and we and the, the business really misses those really good sort of local newspapers, yeah. I think. So I worked there for about three years, and uh, the Montreal Star was just coming back off its strike in 1979, and uh, the Gazette was going to be starting an afternoon edition to go up against the Star, and they needed some people, so I was hired. Uh, I went in and worked for about 18 months uh, in the sports department, uh, the uh, the Canadian Olympic team and Swimming Canada called me to go to Ottawa to work for about eight years as a communication specialist, then back to the Gazette, and I worked my way all the way down to the sports editorship. <laughs> <laughs> and fast forward, you are now, I, I want to get the official title, uh, uh, I want to be accurate with it, Dave. You are the official historian of the National Hockey League, is that correct? Uh, that's probably as close as you're going to find. Yeah, yeah. I'm a columnist and, and historian for the league. In fact, I was covering a game at the Bell Centre in December of 2015, and Gary Mahar, who is a Montreal product, mm-hmm. uh, Gary was the executive... Long-time NHL uh, communications uh, yeah, executive, Executive right? vice president of communications of the NHL, uh, turned up behind me in the press box, and we just started talking and... 
I thought it was a nice little pleasant conversation in the second period. Gary's still with me. And I said, this seems to be a little bit more than just a pleasant how do you do. And uh, anyway, the NHL was having its 2017 centennial season coming. And he said, we paid attention to the work you've done on the Gazette covering the history of the Montreal Canadiens, and we need you to do what you do for us. And wow. so I was That's hired. amazing. I mean, you've, you were able to transition out of legacy media at a time when it was starting to really suffer because of uh, the inroads from digital media and from the internet. Yeah. And I guess that's what you do mostly now, right, is online work. It's totally right? digital. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the only print. And I still am an old school guy. I still like to hear the, the lighter thump of my Montreal Gazette on the doorstep mm-hmm. in the morning and open up the paper and actually get a bit of ink. Well, on it doesn't fingers. thump so much anymore yeah. as much as it just kind of flutters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit smaller and lighter than it used to be. There's still some, <laughs> I still have some good friends who are doing some wonderful work in, at the Gazette. And it's, uh, it's got to be tough because it's yeah. a very different landscape now, right, as we all know. And as you know certainly from you know your radio side too. Yeah. I mean the, the communications business has just changed. I mean and not always for the better. I mean we, no, ways, a legacy but, media yeah. in all of its forms is suffering. We we don't we don't. I'm sure we could talk. You could probably tell five hours worth of stories, Dave. But I, I you know I want to touch on some of your favorites. But I you and I have spoken often about uh, being raised uh, as a Montrealer, and then being thrust into these situations that you could have never imagined when you were in high school. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, do you have a memory of the first time, whether it was in the Habs dressing room or standing in front of a player or your first assignment, do you have a memory of that first Jesus Christ moment? You know what I mean? Like where you can't believe you're actually having this experience that you couldn't have imagined as a kid. Sitting alone with Jean Beliveau the first time. There you go. I mean, Mr. Beliveau was, uh, he was on the back nine of his career when I was a a kid really starting to get into hockey. He retired when I would have been 14. But, I mean, this man just transcended uh, hockey. He, He was just, Everything that you've heard about him, you hear all these stories, he's too good to be true. No, Mr. Beliveau was all of that, and he was more. And we all have our Jean Beliveau stories. Anyone who ever encountered him would know you would always remember it. And the wonderful thing about him is that he had this absolutely incredible memory that he could have met someone 15 years earlier at a gas station somewhere, and someone would walk up to him and say, you might not remember me, Miss Bissapone. Didn't your wasn't your mother doing this at the time? And the person their jaw just drops open. Yeah. And so like what a he gift, was, eh? yeah. So yeah, Jean Beliveau is gifted in so many ways. Yeah. A gifted human. Yeah, I mean, where Rogie was kind of my first guy, and I was the first kid and the only kid on my block wearing an LA Kings jersey playing road hockey. <laughs> That's uh, brave. <laughs> yeah, Jean Beliveau was was it, and um, the first kind of real me- I remember learning to read hockey summaries uh, with my father in the late 1960s in the Montreal Star and the Gazette. And um, one, of my, one of my fun stories was in 1967, the 2nd of May, that was the year, the, the date that the Toronto Maple Leafs last won the Stanley Cup. Um, it's a school night and uh, the Canadians are down three games to two to the Maple Leafs. And my dad sends me to bed at the end of the second period saying, son, don't worry, go seven games, you'll stay up, you'll watch the whole thing. I wake up on my 10th birthday, and my dad tells me that the Canadians have lost the Stanley Cup to the Maple Leafs. He pulls a red wagon out of the dining room closet, and this is a wonderful present and everything else, but I'm devastated. And my father claims, I don't remember, but my father claimed until his last day that I said, I hope the Maple Leafs never win the Stanley Cup again. (laughs) 
So, so it's you. So, so it's me. <laughs> and I'm and fast forward 50 years, and I'm sitting at uh, an NHL centennial year uh, event. It's New Year's Eve 2016 into 2017. Dave Keon is sitting across the room from me. He's a member of those 67 Leafs. I finally walk over to him. I said, Dave, I finally have to ask you. I've been sitting on this for 50 years. Um, but how do you feel knowing that you wrecked a kid's 10th birthday? <laughs> and he looked at me, and I thought I saw for a second just this flicker of sympathy. Mm. And then he looked at me and said, pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the perfect answer. And Dave Keon and I have become very good friends since. And that is one of those I can't believe this has happened moments because a guy who I, yeah. whose every breath I hated is now one of my great friends in there, hockey. There's something about um, – it's my observation. Maybe it's not true – but there seems to be something about that era of hockey player. They they're all they've all got great senses of humor. They're really good at razzing. You know they they yeah. they're thick skinned. You know they 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 don't they there's just something about them. They they have this era of uh, they're still having a good time. Yeah, they are. And the great thing is these guys love telling stories. And Rod Gilbert famously would go off on some tremendous story that he had, and he'd he'd be laying out all the details and everything else. And in the middle of it, Brad Park would pull up and say, Rod, like you weren't even part of that team. And Rod, well, don't let the damn details get in the way of a story. Well, this is perfectly great. And so, but I mean, that's, they all have these incredible, wonderful stories. And I mean, the people who I've come to know and got to, got to spend time with since and listen to their stories and harvest some of these things. I don't write a lot of them, but a lot of what I get gives me great context into who they are. And what I consider to be a great responsibility now is that while I'd like to share the stories of these gentlemen and celebrate them while they're here, I like to have good in a body of work that when they are no longer with us, I can celebrate their lives and their careers and maybe have a kid go to Google and look up someone and realize that hockey didn't start, you know, 10 years ago. You forged a lot of close friendships with, uh, with hockey players and retired players over the year, over the years. And probably the most bittersweet must be your, your friendship with Guy Lafleur and, and watching what he went through towards the end of his life. This is the part of the show where we're going to cry. Yes, sir. Because I, I want you to talk about Guy and about um, about some of those um, those moments that you had with him as he as he look at that yep. yeah number this ten was given to me by the Canadians for my relationship that I had with Guy Lafleur yeah if you're, 10, if you're watching patch. on YouTube uh, you you can see Dave there's a it picture up, of Guy Lafleur that Dave took when Guy knew the end was nigh yeah and I don't know where you were Dave but he's kind of just looking off into the distance and it's one of those. A picture tells us says a thousand words. Yeah. You know, it's it's an amazing picture. Can you tell the story of, of where you were at that time and, yeah. and and what was happening? It would have been April of when did we lose Guy? We lost Guy in April in of twenty twenty two. So it would have been would have been June of twenty twenty one. We were sitting. Uh, he had had the Stanley Cup uh, at a car dealership on the West Island, and he used it for a fundraising for the, the Guy Lafleur Foundation, which had been set up at the Chum Hospital where he was treated for cancer. Um, so a lot of money was being raised for that. We met uh, the next morning uh, over coffee at a restaurant that opened just for us, and we sat and we spoke for the better part of 90 minutes at least. And we covered a lot of ground. We covered his career, and so much of it was in the present tense. A lot of it was in the past and there was very little future tense used, and that really kind of broke my heart because as we're sitting talking, um, 
geese started to well up a little bit. I was just taking all kinds of pictures with my, my phone across the table from him, and he started to well up, and he said, there's so much that I want to do for cancer patients, and I just know I'm not going to be here long enough to do it. <sighs> I'm sorry, it, it, it broke my heart, and still to this day, it's very fresh. It's, uh, but, but well, it was Lafleur, only a year ago, Dave. Yeah, Guy was one of the very, very, very special people yeah. in my life, and and to lose him as we did, I mean, he was uh, he was an incredibly special part of this team. You try to imagine being a French Canadian who is starting in this this in this market on this team the year that Jean Beliveau has just retired, and he comes in from the Quebec Rempart having lit up the queue, and everybody expects him to step into Jean Beliveau's skates and be the next Jean Beliveau. Well. I mean, who's going to do that? No yeah. one. And I think finally a couple of years into his career, or very early on, he was rooming with Henri Richard on the road, and he's, he pulled Henri aside. He said, I just, I, I'm really struggling here. I just don't know how to kind of pull my game together. He said, here's what you do. Henri says, here's what you do. You listen to absolutely everything that Coach Scotty Bowman tells you tomorrow at practice, and then come the game, ignore all of it. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> And that's exactly what Flower did. And that's. And, and, I think and, it was his fourth yeah. season that he broke out. Do you remember the talk about his helmet? I remember yeah. hey, everybody said. He looked like the great kazoo. Yeah, My dad helmet. used to say, he's got to get rid of that helmet. Well, it's everybody said yeah. when he, and takes when he it, did, and he took it he off. He took off. And then and it, his career yeah. took off. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it now, it's crazy talk. He yeah. Was, they, they said, oh, it's because he's wearing that helmet. Well, the stories now, all these guys, of course, today's hockey players, all part of the collective bargaining agreement. They all have separate rooms and so on. Well, Guy's first season, I guess he was out in Victoria. They were, Canadians were doing a bit of a barnstorming uh, across the country. And um, he was rooming with Frank Mahovlich. And Frank had come to the Canadians and had just won the Stanley Cup with Jean Beliveau in his final year. It was a huge thing for Frank. The Big M never enjoyed hockey more than when he played a couple seasons in Montreal, having gotten out from under the, the awfulness of Toronto. Uh, with a short pit stop in Detroit. And they're staying at the Empress Hotel in Victoria. And they, Frank looks out over the harbor and he said, this is beautiful. Guy said, like, instead of going down to the dining room, let's just order breakfast in. And so they call room service and they're on the fifth floor. And he said, we look out the window and there's a window washer hanging out of his harness. And Frank looks at him and says, what do you think? And Guy said, yeah, let's invite him in for breakfast. <laughs> and so the guy just basically <laughs> has crowbars open the window and crawls in and he's sitting and there eating he, breakfast. Did he know oh he was God. with Frank Mahavlitch He knew who Lafleur? Frank was, but he had absolutely really no idea who Guy Lafleur was. Yeah, wow. He had no clue. He knew who the big M was for sure. But so well, had, the, I asked Frank when I, when I saw Frank about a month or so ago, I was at his home and I, I said, do you think, Frank said, do you think that window washer still remembers? I said, are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. If that window washer is still with us, he's still he's telling stories to his grandkids yeah. about going but through I, a window, having I, breakfast. I would Frank. imagine that's the story when you tell when you get home and you say, "You'll never guess what happened." <laughs> Frank Mahomet opened the window and I had breakfast with him. Yeah, sure you did, Pop. Yeah. What are you smoking? And I don't have a phone at the time, so I can't give you any proof to yeah. show you that I actually wow. did this. That's a great story. Yeah, they, it, there's something you know. As much as I said, there's there's something about the. The, the way, the sense of humor of these old guys, the stories they tell are wonderful. And I know we've already covered this, but because you mentioned Rod Gilbert before, um, I think you can tell this story about Rod Gilbert and Gordie Howe. Can you tell that story? Because the end of that story made me laugh um, <laughs> with the way, well, you tell it. 
between. And Rupert I don't Ru think when we were talking before we came into the studio, I don't think I got to the end of the story. But no. the story is this: It's Roger Bear's <laughs> first year in the NHL. One of his first games, if not the first, is at the Detroit Olympia against the Red Wings. And he said, "I've heard all the stories about Gordie Howe. I know about the elbows. I know how he, you know, does all these things to various players. But he doesn't have a history with me. It doesn't know me from Adam. So like, I go out there and I line up. And he said, "I'm waking up on the ice." being given smelling salts. <laughs> <laughs> they're sort of dragging me off the rink and the referee skates by and says very quietly, it was number nine. So he said, years later, I'm at this sports celebrity banquet and I'm sitting at a table with a bunch of people and I'm telling them this story. And I said, my goal in life is to live long enough to go to Gordie Howe's retirement home and dump him out of his wheelchair and have the orderly walk by and say it was number seven, Rod's number, right? So uh, we're telling he's telling me this story and I'm literally falling on the floor laughing. He said, well, it gets better. He said, because I'm at the dining room the next morning and Gordie Howe comes in and, and Gordie sort of had this little twitch, right? Just because he had suffered an injury early in his life and nearly ended his, in, early in his career, nearly ended his life. And he had a little bit of a, a nervous twitch in his eye. And he said, I see this little twitch going as Gordie comes over. He's says, Rod, do we have a problem? He says, no, what, what are you talking about? He says, did I ever get you? He says, well, Gordy, you got everybody. I'm like, <laughs> like, why? What, what's the problem? He says, well, I, why do you want to come to my retirement home and dump me out of my wheelchair? <laughs> I guess the story was too good for somebody at the table yeah. that night not to tell Gordy. So he says, no, Gordy, we're good. So um, now I showed you the I showed you the number 10. I mean, yeah. this came to me from the Rangers. Rod was oh wow. Rod was one of my my dear dear friends too and this was a sweater patch that the Rangers wore Mr. the team. Ranger. Wow. Look at that. The team That's sent amazing. me this as a yeah. uh, as a just a piece of of something to remember can, my life with him. Wait, can you tell your story? Cuz that one? one makes me laugh every single time. Which one? <laughs> was your Phil Esposito. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Esposito in his book. What was the name of his book, Dave? Thunder and Lightning? Yeah. Peter yeah. Golenbach. Yeah. yeah. Phil maintains that he knows nothing about that book, but I don't. <laughs> Phil Esposito in that book told a story about being a rookie and lining up for the Chicago Blackhawks and lining up at left wing against Gordie Howe. Blackhawks playing Detroit. Gordie Howe's on right wing. So Phil Esposito's right beside him and he's thinking to himself, Holy smokes! Like I'm, I'm lined up. I'm in the NHL. I'm lined up opposite Gordy Howe. What wonderful fortune I've had in my life! And the puck drops, and Gordy Howe plants an elbow right between his eyes, right at the top of his nose. And Phil Esposito, like he's bleeding out of his nose, and he starts. He's seeing stars, and he's chasing Gordy Howe around the ice, going, "You fucking cocksucker! You are my hero!" <laughs> <laughs> and you can just see, if you, if you know Phil Esposito, you can yeah. see and hear it happening. Key Lafleur told a story when he came to Detroit for Gordy's funeral. Uh, he told a story that they guess they went on these old-timers tours across Canada. And you always you get a pickup team that would play against them. And there would always be one guy who would just want to show up the old-timers, the NHL guys. Just want to go out and tear around and just be a little bit of a menace. So anyway, there was, they were playing a team of RCMP guys. And one RCMP guy was roaring around, apparently, just like putting the sticks to all these NHL legends and everything else. So Gordy leans over to whoever the coach was behind the bench saying, okay, coach, my line's on next. And the coach says, no, no, don't worry. You'll get your chance. No, no, my line's on now. <laughs> so they go out. Gordy goes over and he moves over from his traditional right-wing position and says to the center, move aside. And, of course, the puck drops and 
The cop never saw it. The yep. elbow hit him, and he was out cold before he hits the ice. Gordy skates by the bench very quietly to his teammates. Says, "Well, boys, we'll have no problem with that guy the rest of the night." At <laughs> <laughs> an old timers yeah. game, so yeah, in retirement game. Yeah. Right? So Gordy Howe suffered no fools, no matter the level of hockey. And he was one of the one one year as a present for my dad. I I uh, uh, I gave him um, a hockey camp. Bobby Hull was there. Gordy Howe was there. There was, you know, the and they had a chance to play with these players and then have yeah. dinner with them. And and um, and uh, Gordy Howe was he went into the room and brought his equipment bag, put the bag on the floor, and changed with the guys. And can you imagine? Yeah, that that's something that you know, I I think he he knew the power of that, but you know it. The, it it made the room silent momentarily. Mr. You know? Howe, why do you wear shoulder pads? Yeah. <laughs> you don't need them. I mean, did you see pictures yeah. of Gordy? And Gordy yeah. never lifted weights. I mean, he just yeah. had one of these freakishly strong bodies. I mean, there's a picture of him, I think, out deep sea fishing. That's a great and picture. And he's got yeah. biceps the size of our That's heads, right? such a great picture. Oh. That picture tells yeah. you everything you need to know about yeah. Gordy Howe. Yeah. The yeah. uh, same way you saw the picture of Bobby Hull, um, I guess, with a pitchfork. With right? the pitch- bailing, bailing hay. hay. That's a yeah. classic one, yeah. too, that I remember for, as yeah. a kid. Yeah. And great, thinking to myself, what's Bobby Hull doing on a farm? <laughs> that for me is one of the great enjoyments of my my life now is that I the work that I do for the NHL, I have access to the Hockey Hall of Fame archives and I will dip in there looking for one picture and three hours later I'm still surfing through pictures because I'm finding shots that I used to have that I cut out right. of Hockey Illustrated yeah. and Hockey Pictorial that were wallpaper in my bedroom. And I'm seeing these pictures now in color and high resolution. I'm just saying, wow. Let me use that as a segue, Dave. Last night I was watching... Uh, the NFL Network, and they had uh, they were showing NFL films productions of old Super Bowls with the voice of John Facenda. Do you remember yeah, John Facenda sure. on NFL? Yeah. And I actually wrote down one of the lines. They were showing uh, Super Bowl twelve, mm-hmm. Denver and uh, and Dallas, and John Facenda says. Denver's offense passed out gifts like a department store Santa Claus, and the Cowboys' defense eagerly scooped up the goodies. And the music's going, and the filmmaking is absolutely fantastic. And this is like, you know, this is close to 50 years old. Does the NHL have anything like or the capability for anything like NFL films? We have film that goes back a long way. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is just scattered around because certainly in the early days, you watched the movie Manhattan Melodrama, which was the movie at the Biograph Theater that John Dillinger saw just before he stepped out to meet his demise. Oops. I mean, there's actually film in that movie, Manhattan Melodrama, with Clark Gable um, of Howie Moran skating at, wow. uh, at Madison Square Garden. But I mean, some of it is a little sketchy, so much of what is out there, but I'll tell you what, the NHL uh, studios crew does incredible work. Some of the things they put together, certainly during the centennial year, we did, we um, essentially had a panel that put together the, the greatest 100 players of all time. We didn't rank them, fortunately, because a ranking is a mugs game. It's ridiculous. Yeah. There's no point doing that. Yeah. But we actually have these video biographies of the top one hundred players as selected by a panel. And some of the film that exists in that is fabulous. I mean, some of the stuff of Elmer Locke skating around, I mean, with his elbow is flying and his, you know, uh, Elmer could have been called offside because his nose crossed the blue line before <laughs> before his body, right? But I mean, some yeah, so some of what is out there is great. But I mean, some of just what you read there, Ted, I mean, some of, of the way the game was communicated, people like this 
even before film was was readily available and before hockey games were broadcast on television, I mean, the announcers and the sports writers of the day were our, our they were our yeah. eyes and our ears. Yeah. And I mean, there was a shot, I guess, I read something, I was doing some research on the longest game in the history of the NHL, six overtimes. It was what, the 24th, you know, the 25th of March, 1936. No, I didn't cover it. Um, <laughs> and and there was actually, I read through some of the stuff like Baz O'Meara and Elmer Ferguson from Montreal. And I think one of the guys wrote that someone was not colder than a bailiff's heart. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like that's any kid today, like what's yeah. a bailiff? Yeah. Like, just yeah, like, yeah. Really? Like, yeah. You know, so I, I wish that more <laughs> of this stuff existed, but what we do have and what we do share and what is available on YouTube now is it's, it's actually really good, but I mean... Is it packaged the way that NFL films package no, their stuff? Not precisely, but we do have we do have all kinds there of different are productions. elements of it. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, there good. are, yeah. Dave, I'm curious about how your life shifted in terms of, you know, when you went from newspaper to the National Hockey League, uh, at a newspaper you would have assignments, I guess, and you would have, you know, they would say, well, the Canadians are in town this week. You're going to cover this game and that game, or you're going to go on the road with them, whatever. How does it work now at NHL.com? Does somebody phone you and say, something's big happening in Dallas this weekend. We need you to go cover that. Or, or or are you pretty much self-assigned? I'm largely self-assigning. So, I mean, you could not have written a better job description for wow. me. I mean, certainly from the centennial year as we've gotten through 18, 19 and move forward, I mean, there are still some great historical stories to be written. Uh, so I will not be on the road through the rest of the, uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, and that's by choice. I mean, I could have gone to the Stanley Cup final, but we'll have a lot of people from yeah. NHL.com who will be there. And the type of work that I do would not necessarily be anything that they need. I mean, so I'd like to think of what I do as value added. I mean, what I will do in the middle of June, I'm going out to spend two days on Glen Hall's farm to go spend some time with Mr. Goalie, who's my best yeah. friend in the game today. And I mean, something like that, I, it, I'll, I'll come away. I won't necessarily go and do that trip as an assignment for the NHL, but it will just give me some additional things to consider. I mean, Glenn turns 92 in October. He's still doing well. But I mean, I just like to keep my files fresh, and Glenn is just one of the great, wonderful storytellers, and he's just a, the sweetest man you could ever possibly imagine. So he, he he's on. Uh, it is that where he was raised the the homestead that he has in Alberta. Uh, was that where he chose to retire, or does he have a family connection? He had. Um, he decided with his wife to actually to be able to get out of Edmonton. Edmonton was pretty much where he was living right. uh, as he was playing. He would go back from the Chicago Blackhawks uh, and the St. Louis Blues back out to Edmonton, but they bought a farm, and it's 155 acres, and he still lives there. He now has someone who lives with him, but he has family who live very close to him. Mm-hmm. And they're on his doorstep all the time. But I mean, uh, Glenn is. Um, he's still quite self-sufficient and uh, his storytelling is incredible. I mean, I, on my Facebook page, I think I have about a dozen um, of Glenn's greatest quotes that just totally cracked me up. I mean, he doesn't say a lot. I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to throw one at you. I mean, yep. He's Moose Vasco, Elmer Moose Vasco, we'll remember from our days, he was a huge guy, a hulking <laughs> defense. I mean, he said, Moose weighed 222 pounds only once and that was on the way up. <laughs> he'd get his hairs and fingernails, uh, he'd get his hair and fingernails cut before his way in and he'd only step on the scale after a deep exhale. <laughs> one of the, one of the best is, uh, he said, I had two assists in 1965-66 and Al McNeil, who coached the Canadians to the cup yep, in 71 yep. and 
was a Blackhawks defenseman at the time, had none. And I reminded him of this often during the season. Al said, I'll catch you if I have a good second half and stay healthy. At the end of the year, I have two assists, and Al has one, and he announces, I know how that happened. Hall played all the power plays. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Glenn has, these are just one story after another. He, so. he was the barfer, wasn't he? He was, and and I guess the <laughs> common... Wasn't the Gumper, mis- too? Yeah, Gumper, too. I think too, a few too. of them yeah. were. The I think bar- Gumper's better line was that someone accused him of having a beer belly, and he said, that's utter nonsense, I only drink VO. <laughs> 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 and when but, you say barfer, you mean they yeah, would get the, sick to the, their stomach the from nerves barf. before the I game. Yeah. Glenn, thought, yeah. the misconception was that, that Glenn was just was a nervous Nelly. I mean, the idea was that Glenn felt that he had to be right on the edge. He had to be so keyed up to perform his mm. best. And he said people thought that I was throwing up on teammates' skates in the dressing room. He yeah. said I'd quietly go off in the washroom, and he said yeah. I'd, you know, and then I'd come back out, and I'd be fine, but I'd be ready to go. But unless I felt that keyed up, I didn't feel that I was going to be prepared to play well. When when I see pictures of Glenn Hall and the Gumper and you know uh, Bauer and those guys, I I marvel at the fact that they didn't wear a mask. Glenn played five hundred and two consecutive games, five oh two consecutive without a mask. Did you ask? Have you ever It'll asked him happen. about it? It'll never no, happen. no. I, no, I mean, it just. I mean, he just. That was. He said that's, that's what he did. What it was five hundred and fifty-two, including playoffs. And Glenn charted back into the minor pros, probably more than a thousand games consecutively. Wow. And he, you know, he took a few, a few little stitches, a few marks, a few things. But we're sitting having a conversation one day in his dining room, and all of a sudden, like he just two 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 six five one six, and I just suddenly stopped. <laughs> I said, "What is this? The phone number? Should I write that down?" He said, "No, it's the the damn." patent number of the Art Ross puck. There were so many of them behind me. I had to fish. And I, sure enough, like me, I went and looked and sure enough, there it is. 2226516 is the patent number printed on the Art Ross puck of the no day. No kidding. He just had it. It was burned in his brain and it's, it still annoys him. Is that the Art, Rock, Art Ross puck, is that the one with the orange? The diagonal? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. I have a, I have Do one you? of those at home and I have one older than that. Uh, Elmer Locke at one point during a conversation came out of his, the back room and he hands me this absolutely pristine puck and it's uh, the, the, the octagonal orange yeah. crest is even smaller yeah. and it's abs- it's beautiful. This this puck has never been touched by a stick and he said, I was in the Canadian's dressing room my rookie year in 1940 and I saw this sitting under a bench and I picked it up and he said, my guilty conscience is just such that I have to unload this thing so will you please take it? Wow. And he gave it to me as a gift. No kidding. So it's wow. on my bookcase. I, I remember there was the days when, uh, you know, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, Montreal was the economic and cultural capital of the country, and the NHL headquarters were here. Yeah, and I don't remember how it happened, but at one point I was really interested in pursuing a career as a as an official. I loved to referee, and somebody got me um, an, an an interview when I was a kid with Ron Andrews, who was the statistician yeah, of the, the NHL. First at the statistician time. of the NHL, yeah. and I forget where their offices were. I think the Sun, Sun Life, Life Building. building yeah. And you open these big doors, and there was a big, big carpet with a big NHL logo yeah. in in the uh, in the lobby. And I remember trembling, you know, walking into that NHL office. Did you step on the crest? They always the, the idiots. I, I, people always say, "Don't I, step on the crest in the dressing room. You don't want to step on. Don't put it yeah, on the floor. Yeah, yeah, seriously, right in the, the middle of the room." Yeah. <laughs> and Ron Andrews gave me one of those pucks, and I don't know where it is. Yeah. And and there's something about that orange. It's an octagon, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. There's something about that that screams. I know. The big For league. me, that's it. And yeah. some of them had the team crest on the other yeah. side. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. the the one that I have is the orange crest on both sides of that puck. Yeah. 
When when you talk to guys like Glenn Hall and and you know Lafleur and Bellavo and these guys who spent um, these long years in the National Hockey League, is is there a, a melancholy about them? Are, do they do they miss the game? You know what I mean? Like, is that why they love telling stories? I'm wondering about you know the. It's probably the, nostalgia more than melancholy, it, wouldn't it be, Dave? The thing I suppose it could vary from individual to individual. Yeah, because I, I think you know you spend all those years, um, in in that environment doing that for a living, you know, and then your body starts to betray you, and and then you know your life your yeah. life shifts dramatically, especially the original six guys. The original six guys didn't go home with fourteen million dollars in the bank. There were one hundred and twenty players in that league, and there were one hundred and twenty in the American League, and in these the minor pros Jesus. beneath them who are just literally one slash or one stitch or one cut away from coming up and maybe taking the guy's place. But I think that what they miss more than anything um, is very much the the camaraderie of being on a team. And Dickie Moore would tell me that today's players are making a ton more money than I ever made, but they're having a fraction of the fun. Uh, he said, imagine if you will, I'm coming back from Chicago overnight and someone has thrown something, someone's thrown a spittoon and dinged Rocket Richard in the head with it, and Rocket goes through the car with a pair of scissors and cuts everyone's <laughs> pants into shorts. And we get off the train at Montreal West, our wives are waiting to go. We're all going out for a nice fancy lunch, and we're all getting off the train in February in short pants. So, and that doesn't, they don't have as much fun today? Why not? I, I think that the game has grown so much, and there are different cliques within a dressing room. I mean, once you get to the playoffs, I think there's a great sense of bonding with these guys and once you're on a team there is and I, I've talked with, with guys about this unless you're on a team you probably can't understand I mean how much how important it is that you're a member of the team and that you are going to be a role player and that you may have to step out of your comfort zone well and be something else and, and I think there I could be wrong I think there's a generational shift going on where um, players are getting a little bit more whiny and uh, guys like um, Mr. Sutter in Calgary, his style doesn't work anymore because you can't yell at me and I don't want to be. They're spoiled. It, well, the coaches, they, there's been active, I think, active rebellion against coaches in Vancouver. I think part of it was part of the problem in Toronto. You know, there's these little clicks of, you know... I. I, I would imagine back in the day, if Scotty Bowman yelled at you because, you know, you had a bad shift or benched you, you didn't challenge him. Yeah, Scotty would famously leave, and I've, I've heard the story about different cities, different times, but Scotty would leave a stick with uh, with a concierge in a hotel and say, this is for my, my daughter or something. When the players come in, would you please have them sign it? Well, he'd leave it at 1130 at night, knowing the curfew was 1135, and... He'd show up at practice the next day, and there'd be nine signatures on that stick. Well, guess who missed curfew? Right? Yeah. So, and, 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 and it's been attributed to many people too. But the famous thing is that you know people would say that we all hated Scotty Bowman 364 days a yeah. year, and the 365th we'd get our Stanley Cup ring. Yeah. So I mean, you try to imagine Scotty and Toll Blake to a degree. Yeah. I mean, working with this incredibly gifted roster. And having all these different personalities, and Larry Robinson would would say we practiced guilty. I mean, you try to imagine yeah. the nineteen the 1970s Montreal Canadiens. Imagine if social media had existed in no. those days. No, I, you know, forget it. Um, we, we should do some business. Yes, we yeah. should. We've got uh, a couple of supporters to thank, and uh, I want to start 
with my friends at Matla Bonheur. When when Ted and I do the uh, the Saturday show at Light 106.7, we talk about the people that have supported us for a very long time. Um, talk about old timers. We've been around a while, and we've had some people, you know, support us for a very, very long time. And Ted and I always chose businesses that we believed in, that we shopped at, that we were convinced were treating their customers well. And uh, some of those people have come with us on the podcast, and that includes uh, Normand and his family that own and run Matla Bonheur. Matla Bonheur are a place where you can get service like you can't find anywhere else anymore. When you walk into one of their stores, you will be immediately greeted by somebody who has been well-trained in all of the products uh, in the store, will greet you with a nice warm greeting, ask you a couple of questions about what you're looking for and what kind of mattress you like to sleep on and what side, you know, do you sleep on your belly? Do you sleep on your back? Don't be offended. They're just trying to point you in the right direction of the right mattress that will change the way you sleep. And everybody knows a great night's sleep is something that you begin to treasure more and more as the years go by. And what I can guarantee you is when you go into any of the beautifully designed stores, they will not hound you. I don't know about you, but I do not like being followed around by a salesperson. You know, what about this one? What about this one? (laughs) Just leave me alone and let me lie. Because if I have any questions, I'll I'll find you. you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what they do. They leave you be. You can lie on the mattresses, flop around on them. See what you like. Ask your questions. It's a wonderful shopping experience that has been maintained for many, many years. This Canadian-owned, Quebec-owned, Quebec-run company that deals with mostly Canadian suppliers. It's just a great business and a great place to shop. All you have to do is go online. There are uh, locations all across the island of Montreal, on and off the island of Montreal. Matla Bonheur. Do you know if they're still doing the Terry and Ted uh, code thing? I, I don't believe they are. No, I... So I'll have to double check that. All right. I'm sorry I brought it up. Uh, me too. Other longtime <laughs> supporters of the uh, of our radio program and the podcast, the D. Cubellos family from Jaguar Land Rover Laval. Whenever Terry comes into town, uh, they give me a courtesy card right. to ferry him uh, to and fro. And uh, we went and picked up Dave this morning in the uh, the 2020 Jaguar XF30T i4 Turbo, 300 horsepower. And Dave said that he's never had an Uber driver arrive in a Jaguar before. <laughs> Today was the first day. Never. So uh, thanks to uh, Adrian, their marketing director, and to uh, Nino and Renato DiCubellos, the co-owners of Jaguar Land Rover Laval. They also own McLaren Montreal, and Terry and I were up there for an open house. And I said to Terry, and I mentioned this to Dave, too, on the drive today, I forget how high-end those products are because Nino and Renato are so down-to-earth. They're just down-to-earth. wonderful family. Down-to-earth people in a high-end world. And that permeates the dealership. Everybody at the dealership is friendly and decent and humble, and I mean, we're talking about Jaguars and Land Rovers and McLarens. These are high-end, high-performance vehicles. Well, yesterday, the dealership was chock-a-block full of people with phones, lots of kids, lots of teenagers, lots of car enthusiasts were there, and milling about and around these cars that are, they're worth a lot of money. The McLarens, you know, that's 
it's a very special product for a very special demographic of people. And what I liked about it was, go ahead, have a look. There was no ropes around nope. the car. Nope. There was there was no, hey, get off of that, don't touch that. They're just very, very welcoming and make you feel very comfortable from the second you walk up the stairs there. The product speaks for itself. It's it's their attitude that makes a big difference. Yep. They're so they're so friendly and welcoming. JaguarLaval.com, LandRoverLaval.com. Uh, the new car dealership is at Boulevard Le Car 4, corner of uh, Chambody Boulevard in Laval. And then you've got Jaguar Land Rover Laval, certified pre-owned right up the street at 2300 Boulevard Chambody. Uh, that's right next to the McLaren Montreal dealership. Yep. Poke your head in there and yep. have a look, why don't you? Do some ooing and eyeing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you love cars, you'll love it. So thank you to Nino and Renato and Adrian for coming back on board for Season 5. Our guest is uh, Dave Stubbs from NHL.com. Here's a, a question um, that really probably belongs at the Hymas Tavern, Dave. Um, do you think they could have rebuilt the forum? Unfortunately not. Uh, the, no uh, the footprint of the forum was such that you look at that block between Lombard Claus and Atwater and De Maisonov and St. Catherine Street, there was really nowhere to go beyond up, and they had pretty much taken that yeah. building up as far as they could. I mean, you could not bring the uh, bring the haulers in that they need for doing the high-end shows and various things. Yeah. And, you know, with the luxury suites and so on, based on what hockey was becoming, they really did need a new building. Uh, that said, I mean, I have not been back into the Montreal Forum in a number of years, and people tell me that I should not go back yeah, in just based on anything. what it's yeah. become. But um, what's interesting to me is, to, well, I've been gone for a couple of years out of the city, but to this day, I still see... A fathers and sons standing at the corner of Atwater and St. Catherine with a camera or a camera phone. Yeah, with them yeah. pointed at. Well, remember the, the cross the sticks, the escalators, yeah. and that, yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's such an amazing building. I mean, you either needed a Sherpa guide or a mountain goat to get to a seat <laughs> if you were in the upper gallery, right? I mean, yeah. if you had vertigo, good luck yeah. to you because that, yeah. that the Montreal Forum was worth probably ten to twelve points a year for the Canadians. If a yeah. team got out of there with a tie yeah. in the days before shootout and overtime, I mean, they felt they had a win. Uh, because well, that that team, a Canadians team, who went sixty-eight and twelve, they lost one game at home that entire year. Try to you imagine know, the, the fear. You know, sorry, Dave, go ahead. I was just going to try to imagine, uh, you know, talk radio the next morning. The Habs lost a game. Oh yeah. my God! Fire everybody! <laughs> Get a That's train like you telling bag of your pucks. story about the Canadians yeah. getting on the school bus. That I remember that season <laughs> so well because we get on the bus after the Habs lost, and it would be like, oh my God! Like, what do you think happened? <laughs> like, how did that? How was that possible that they lost last night? And that's, I mean, that'll never be repeated. No, no, no. can't. Like I mean, that. and just based on what the game has become and yeah. so on. And then you can't, people say, who do you, what team do you think, how would this team do against that team? And look, the game has changed too much. You cannot compare eras. You can't no. compare it based on the fitness of players, the equipment based on, on the schedule. You can't, but I think all of that said is that I think the greatest players of the day in any era, you give them the same advantages of equipment, fitness, and so on. And they could get by more than fine in I, in today's NHL. I remember talking to Ivan Cornway, and he kind of laughed. This was a few years ago. I said, so, Roadrunner, how many goals do you think you'd score this series? I don't know, 12, 14? I said, Ivan, like, you just got 14? I said, yeah, yeah, but you understand, like, I'm, like, 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, I saw that coming yeah, down. Yeah, I saw that coming, Dave, like a cab coming down the street with its yeah, doors open. And I don't know how many times Ivan has used it, but every time uh, I laugh. It is. So that's a great a, joke. Two things about the, the old forum. A, at least it's still there. They yeah. didn't tear it down and build yeah. condos yeah. yet. Yeah. yeah, give them a minute. Uh, 
And B, I think personally, and this is just my own impression, I think they did a pretty good job of recreating the atmosphere with the Bell Center. The Bell Center is a very special place. I think especially if you're from out of Montreal and you come in, maybe it's because it's still Montreal, the greatest hockey city in the world. But I find there's a really good atmosphere at the Bell Center. I think there is. And I think one of the things that we need, the Bell Center, is it needs a championship, right? Yeah, I mean, it's they, the Canadians moved into that building in March of 1996. Yeah. They could also get rid of the scoreboard and all the racket that comes from the yeah. scoreboard. When I say atmosphere, I mean the aura around yeah. that's still a Montreal th- Canadiens aura. I could be wrong, but I think that's created by the fans. Yeah. You know, like uh, I've met a number of artists, you know, rock and roll artists and, and performers who perform in Montreal and say there's nothing like a Montreal audience yeah. because of the emotion, you know, there's, there's a lot of Latin French Canadian, you know, um, people like, and I know this from going to Canucks games now and also going to concerts at uh, Rogers arena. Um, there's a more staid presentation, a little bit more of a reserved reaction in the building, whether it's music or hockey, and it's unreserved craziness. The passion about is more passion. overt yeah. here. Yeah, I think yeah. that has something to Well, do an with. illustration to how much this game has changed, too, is that I look at some of the old photographs from the 1950s, and you look, number one, there are very few kids in the stands. The parents have come to the game, and they are dressed like they're going to the opera. Yeah. The men are wearing suits. The women are wearing furs. I mean, it's and the symmetry of this this row upon row upon row of fans going up. It's just it's breathtaking. And today, uh, I kind of laugh because you'll see two guys crushed up against the glass, and I mean, someone's nose is plastered against the glass, and you have a fan like, look, I'm on the scoreboard. Yeah. So that's but I mean, that's the nature of what it is. There was no game presentation crew on a team right. back in those days. There was no video scoreboard. I mean, the scoreboard there was the told game. you the score. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. in the old days, I mean the scoreboard barely told you the score. You look yeah. at some of the old pictures on on the St. Luke side of the building of the Forum. I mean, you needed to be, as my dad would say, a Philadelphia lawyer to understand, I mean, what, <laughs> yeah. what that scoreboard said. There were all these dials and things, and who knew what the score was? You had no idea. So, But it's, um, you know, it, it's changed, and it's uh, for the better in a lot of ways. Uh, for uh, a fossil like me, not in a lot of ways, but... Um, I celebrate the game as I get to cover the game and cover the legends that I still do, and there are fewer and fewer of them. It's a smaller family. And Jean Beliveau said, after one of the passings of one of the players, he said that one of the things about being a part of a very big family is that you have more family members to lose, mm-hmm. and that's what uh, that's what we find. I mean, certainly with the with the, the original six, certainly there are fewer and fewer of these players now still with us. Do you have a favorite rink, Dave, or do you have other rinks that you enjoy going to outside of Montreal, or are there any are there any old burns that you really miss? Um, TD Garden is great, and I think any of the original six, if you want to so-called original six, because those six teams from we'll called the original six, because from 1942 to 1967 they were the same six teams, but they were not the six teams that the NHL was founded with in 1917. Um, the original six barns, I mean, were all great. I mean, I, I still like going to a game at uh, in Toronto. A very different crowd. I mean, and that building was also built for basketball. So, like the luxury suites are not upstairs; they're down below. Oh. So a period starts and you will see like the first 12 rows are empty until the first whistle or second whistle and then the fans come up from underneath. Um, every every building has its own strengths. I mean, Nashville, when I went out to cover playoffs in, in Nashville, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, Las Vegas is absolutely off the charts. 
so, you know, there are a lot of fans who are really struggling with the idea that the Stanley Cup final this year is a Sun Belt uh, Stanley Cup final uh, when it when it becomes that. But um, I think that you're you're going to see great hockey no matter what. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's, it's it's yeah, it, the game is still the game. Yeah, and it's great, it's great for the game and all of that. But I I must admit. Um, I haven't watched any of it. I have, I have no interest in it. I, You're not alone. I, You're I not just, alone. There are a lot I, of people. I, I, because I, because I, it's in Vegas I, and I, Dallas. I don't know what and, it is, but at one point, you know, I said to my wife, I said to Jess, is it Dallas and Carol? <laughs> like, who, what's happening? Yeah. And she was following it more than I was. And I I don't know what it is, but I, I'm just... You know, I I fell off the wagon. I, I, I don't think it's because it's a Sunbelt thing. It's just, you know... As you point out, the game has changed, and and I I've got I've got no attention. It's attach. also a lot too. It's yeah, a lot and it's to, too to long. watch hockey yeah, all the way somebody to, close out to July. Recently, the cup used to be you know the Stanley Cup parade was in Montreal usually in May, yeah. right? And now yeah. now we play late. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I got an, I don't know. There's just no attachment to the. I don't know what, what Rogers' numbers would be for the Stanley Cup yeah. playoffs as we go, but I imagine that since the Oilers and the Leafs were knocked out, yeah. I would think that, and the Jets, I would think that the numbers have probably taken a hit. Are you, are you still allowed to hate the Leafs? Absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> hating the Toronto, <laughs> hating the Toronto Maple yeah, Leafs I, is one of the things that keeps this country strong. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it unites us. Right? And that also, to me, destroys that whole thing about people in the playoffs. They go, okay, well, I'm going to hope for them because they're the last Canadian team. Yeah, nope. yeah find me a Montrealer who's going to root for the yeah, Toronto Maple Leafs. I just Maple can't. Leafs. I just, are just people are asking me that. I just can't. I cannot stand that logo. I cannot stand that <laughs> color. I cannot stand that building. I cannot stand their fans. I just, I can't. I just can't do it. Dave, yeah, when, struggle. when I, I knew when I knew you were coming on with us, the first thing that popped into my mind that I want to ask you because I go through this every year on social media, and uh, I'll just put the question to you: Paul Henderson, Hall of Fame, yes or no? No, no, eh? I don't Why think not? so. And the reason I say that is because the Hall of Fame is with an asterisk. I'll say no. Okay, the Hall of Fame is meant to be um, a place where your entire body of work, your, your, your life's body of work as a hockey player or as a builder uh, is recognized. Paul Henderson was brilliant in no question with, with three consecutive winning goals in the 1972 Summit Series. Paul Henderson was not even the best team, best player on Team Canada. That was Phil Esposito. Yep. Phil Esposito's third period in Game 8 in Russia was the best third period that you will see that any hockey player will play ever based on what was out there, what was at stake, he just wasn't coming off the ice at the end. So I say that with an asterisk. That said, I mean, there are a lot of players that people look at and say, why is this guy in the Hall well, of that's, Fame? Well, that's where I was going to go. If Joey Mullen yeah. and Clark Gillies and Bernie Federko can be yeah. in the Hall of Fame, yeah. and so, fine hockey players all, yeah. but I mean, then why not Paul Henderson, so, who scored the most famous goal in the history of the game and had a good, solid career on top of that? Yeah, so that's my asterisk. I mean, I think that maybe... It, it's it's a moving target, and um, I think that when the Hall of Fame announces its uh, class every year, there should be a puff of white smoke coming out of the <laughs> chimney. <laughs> because honestly, I mean, like I don't know how they how they work, how that committee works, but it works very secretively, and there is no accountability in the sense that right. if you voted for someone <coughs> or not me. voted for someone. Then there you go. But I mean, I know that there is, I have a colleague uh, who works uh, in the newspaper business in Montreal who's on the selection committee, uh, and I won't use his name, but his name is Marc Defoy of the, uh, the Journal. Yep. He is championing, and he's been in touch with me. He wants to see Claude Provo in the Hall of Fame. Claude Provo won nine yep. Stanley Great Cup championships. Yep. 
if the Frank J. Selke trophy as the best defensive forward had existed in his day, he wins that thing year after year. He Bobby Hull wore him like a sweater. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, he was a great, great checker. But for some reason, there hasn't been the traction to get him in there. But Mark is trying to make that Guy happen. Carbono made it, and that was the yeah. role that he played. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. so I mean, I don't know. Maybe it, it becomes the issue. Someone has been away from the game for so long. Do they Are they just not moving the needle anymore? They need someone to take that to take that file and move it forward, and Mark is doing that. My advice to Paul Henderson is transition to Pauline Henderson, and you're in. <laughs> Social commentary <laughs> by Ted Bird. And, and he may, and he may yet, he may yet get yeah, in. Yeah. I mean, he would not be. In, I would not argue. If he got in, I would not say why is Paul yeah, Henderson. Yeah. He would be. Yeah, a but very you know what? A lot, a younger generation will argue because every time yeah. I argue for him on social media, I get okay, boomer. Yeah. If you remember, it's part of one of the things I will never forget about uh, going outside. I don't even know what I was doing outside, but the the during that series, when that series was on television, it there was nobody on the streets. There nobody. You know, we watched. Well, we could watch it in school. Yeah, they we we watched TV into the classroom. Such a. A, a momentous moment for the country and for the game and, you know, for international politics. And, you know, and I remember watching the first night at the forum and going, oh, look at their skates and their gloves. You know, like they, they look like, they looked like well, beer it looked like guys. they were playing in yeah. Moscow. It looked like they were playing on the moon for one. Yeah, I mean, you just looked at the quality of it. And I remember that my grade nine teacher was not going to wheel a TV into the classroom, and I told my father this. And my dad said, "I'm not going to be working that day. If you choose not to go back after lunch, yeah. then I'm okay with that." Yeah. And my dad sent me to school the next day with a note that just said, "Game eight." <laughs> all it said. That was the entire excuse note. <laughs> It was also a watershed moment in that it demonstrated to us exactly how good the Russians were. Yeah, we we had no idea. We thought we were going to clean their clocks. It changed the game because there were a number of coaches, and none of them are coming to mind right now, who became students of the Russian style of the game. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they were just, these guys were great hockey players. And I mean, because they were winning at the World Championships, we just kind of held our noses and sniffed and said, well, not playing against anyone. I mean, and they showed up at their first practices in, you know, in Montreal wearing mismatched skates and and horrible looking sticks and sweaters that were unraveling and that, and they came out and remember... 7-3, they won the honor. Canada pops too early and it's like, oh, here we go, here we go. And all of a sudden, the next, yeah. the next morning. Remember the Sunday Express the next day, we lost. Screaming yeah. headline oh. across the And I, I, re- I remember seeing footage of them at practice and thinking, the hell are they using all those medicine balls for? <laughs> They're throwing medicine balls <laughs> yeah, at each right. other. It was, it was just so different because it, it came from behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And Montreal as a city hated Vladislav Trecek yeah. for three years yeah. until he played against the Montreal Canadiens yeah. on December 31st, 1975. A lot of people say that's the greatest game ever yeah. played. No, it was not. The quality of hockey, if Ken Dryden wasn't a bit of a sieve, I mean, that the Canadians run the Russians out of the building that night. But I mean, I think the fact is that Trechak, when he played as well as he did and he was named one of the stars, it was that was the greatest game, I think, or the most important game between two club teams, the Central Red Army and the Montreal Canadiens. Well, they, they were so impressed they tried to draft them, didn't they? Yeah, the they Canadians? did. They did, yeah. They, they actually just, and did, didn't they? Trechak bought a brick yeah. in the Montreal Canadiens Plaza outside the wow. Bell Centre, so he actually has a brick down on the uh, in that uh, celebration plaza. Um, we, uh, we got a couple more ads we have to do, and we have to yes. do the tweet sheet. Yes, yeah. we will. 
because um, I know you've you've curated the tweets. I did curate, yeah, specifically for Dave because Dave's uh, Dave's a writer and uh, Dave's got a good sense of humor. The tweet sheet is something we do, Dave, where I find three three things off Twitter that make me laugh, and we and and I do it on uh, on my morning show on Light One O Six Seven every morning. There are some that I can't use on the radio because they're a little salty, <laughs> salty <for> public <laughs> airways, but we can use them on. Uh, standing by the Terry and Ted podcast, so I found three that I'd like to run by you here, and uh, we'll see we'll see how and whether they go over. I, th- I think you're going to like them. All right, here's the first one. Okay, our producer has put a pause on it. Yeah, go ahead. Sidon. Okay. All right, all set. This one is from I can't see that far. I think it says at Dustin Couch. Couch. Yeah, NASA employee. Oh, hey, you guys are back early. Astronaut. Moon's haunted. NASA employee. What? Astronaut loading a pistol and getting back into the rocket ship. <laughs> Moon's haunted. <laughs> <laughs> Who said Twitter is a, is useless? It's <laughs> not. There's a lot of funny on Twitter. And that's it. one of them. Yeah, I like that one a lot. From Shen the Bird. Boss, what's the problem? Coworker pointing to me. That guy stole my thesaurus. Me. He peddles <laughs> falsehoods. <laughs> What's wrong about that is pedals is correctly spelled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right away you expect it to be incorrectly spelled. And this is my favorite from at Alex Lumga. Me, we're expecting a hard frost tonight. Robert Frost kicks indoor. I've got miles to go before I sleep, motherfucker. <laughs> you, file, you follow a very eclectic group yeah. of people on Twitter, Ted. That is a hard frost right there. Social media is great. When I left the NHL, I used to, well, it, with the Gazette, I used to have <coughs> Bruins fans just just raining that just just hell on me it's just this hellfire coming from anything i would say about the canadians ah oh, you're right for the montreal gazette you suck and go on and on and on so i think i wrote one of my first pieces for the nhl i wrote a piece on johnny Busick, and some guy sent me a note he said you're not as much of an idiot as i thought you were <laughs> oh thanks that's high praise you know that uh, one of the all-time radio great radio uh, mispronunciations yes. yeah. right? did you hear that was it you who no i think that? it was you you told well, me i heard about it yeah somebody somewhere some kid who didn't know anything about how Hockey, didn't ask. Boston Bruins captain Johnny Buckyuck. <laughs> Ted, we got to take a moment to talk about Sean at Voswin because uh, um, we don't know anything about engineering. No, sir. So I don't know what you're going to do here, but uh, well, we have to sing Sean's praises. Get a load of this, Dave. Voswin is an engineering and an engineering consulting firm, and they called us. Sean Smith, who owns uh, Voswin, called us and said, I want to advertise on your podcast. Like, and we went, who yeah. is this? Yeah. You know <laughs> really? what we do, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Apparently, we have inventors who listen to the podcast because it's generated business for him. That's amazing. Yeah, he got It's not amazing, though, but it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, what they do, what Voswin does, is if you have an idea for an invention or for an innovation or you, you have something you want to do with your, your company that in, has an engineering component and you don't know how to approach it, you talk to Voswin. And, uh, and they take care of that for you. That's what they do. They do uh, mechanical engineering and design, electrical engineering de- and design, industrial engineering and design, software development. They have a CTO service, Chief Technological Officer. Sure. So if you don't have one of those in <laughs> yep. your company, they provide that service for you. And if you have an invention idea, that what is it you say, Ter? They take it yeah, from your head and put it in your hands. And yeah, that's right. They take it from your head and put it in yeah. your hands. They can they can you've got an idea that you want to give birth to, 
they will help deliver that idea. Yeah, and they they from start to finish, product development and yep. design, and then they know all the procedures to take you through the process of your your patent and getting it to market and getting it manufactured and. Uh, then they do the CTO stuff, the chief technical right. technology. Anything that we don't know how to do, they do. <laughs> Voswin.com, and it's the most amazing thing. Sean said he's got a new project that, that came from someone who listens to uh, the podcast. So the inventors are out there listening Thank to you. us here. We appreciate Thank that. Thank you, Einsteins. Yep. Thanks uh, for listening. Why do I want to say that Sean probably heard from Brendan Shanahan about building a Stanley Cup championship <laughs> in Toronto. <laughs> Can you help us with that? Maybe Sean can help with that. Yeah. Um, and we were, when we started this episode of the podcast, uh, just before we started our conversation with Dave, we were talking about longtime uh, supporters of both mine and Ted's over the years. And uh, near close to the top of that list has got to be, uh, first of all, Mark and Bonnie Merson. Yep. Um, and now the shop, Mark and Bonnie are, uh, I would say, mostly retired. Uh, now, Kara and Celso run the shop. New generation of the family is running Merson Automotive. And I found them the way I think a lot of Montrealers found them. I got ripped off by a shady mechanic 30-plus years ago, and somebody said to me, you shouldn't have gone there. You should have gone to the Mersons. And I said, who are the Mersons? And they, the guy that recommended them to me said, they're as honest as the day is, as long. They, they, will, they will never do anything unnecessary. Next time you have a problem with your car, Take it there. That was 30 years ago, and they're still doing it, Ted. Yeah. Tires are their specialty, and uh, Yokohama is the brand they deal in the most. But uh, anything you need in terms of car maintenance, car repair, uh, the Mersons will take care of you. And if there's something, and I've had this experience on a couple of occasions with the Mersons. Once I needed body work, and once there was something with the drivetrain that was... Uh, Celso looked at it, and he said, you know what? I would rather send you to this guy here. He's really good at this. And I went and saw that guy there. And when I needed the body work, I went and saw other buddy over there recommended by the Mersons. And in both instances, great work, honest people, reasonable price. Uh, if the Mersons can't do it for you, and they can do just about everything, but even if there's something that they can't do, they'll send you somewhere where you can uh, trust that person as much as you can trust them. You don't run that a business in that business for three generations without being honest. No, and what I like is I've, I've met sons of older customers or daughters of older customers sitting in the waiting room who would tell me, yeah, yeah my father used to come here all the time, and now I come here all the three time. Three-generation-old yeah. business with yeah. customers who go back three That's generations. Right. Mercenado.com, and I should uh, mention for Voswin, for uh, all you inventors out there, Voswin, V-O-Z-W-I-N. Can't com. do this podcast without the help of our supporters, and we appreciate it. Um, Dave, what do you make of Connor Bedard? Generational talent. Yeah. Eh? I mean, yeah, he looks like he's going to be one of those guys who will be absolutely great, who could pretty much just transform a team. Um, that's a lot of pressure to put on the shoulders yeah. of a young kid. But, I mean, uh, there are few and far between the guys who come into the league who can do it. But he's certainly, his his toolbox is overflowing, no question. Last guy who was that good would be McDavid. Yeah, or last guy so. at that of, the, of that generational talent caliber. So. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of McDavid not winning a cup? Well, I was just going to say. Yet. Speaking of that, what the hell is going on in Edmonton? I don't know, Dave. Over to you. Um, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's, it's every. It's got to be. It's got to be more than one or two guys. I yeah. mean, you've got McDavid and you've got you know Leon Dreisaitl, Dreisaitl but I yeah. mean you know you just everything has to kind of 
come together. And I mean, the the weird thing about the playoffs is that just strange stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to Johnny Busick the other day. I said, Chief, have you gone out west yet? Because he has a motorhome that he drives out to his place in British Columbia. And he said, no, we were going to wait and go in July because the Bruins are going to be around for a long run. Yeah. Well, yeah. 88, year, note. 88 year old Johnny Busick drives around in a motorhome? Drives a motorhome right across the continent oh, and goes, wow. up to, goes up to <laughs> northern BC, hangs out for the summer, then turns around with his wife and just drives back. Wow. Good for him. That's yeah, for him. him. It's, yeah. it's this is a really unfair question, but do you have a singular moment when you look at not the history of the National Hockey League, but the 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 portion of the history that you've covered? Is there one that stands out with, for you that is just monumental that you know you never forget? Maybe for um, a very sensitive and personal reason, but covering the uh, the illness and the passing and the wake and the funeral of Jean Beliveau yeah. for me would be the one that absolutely just, um, it was everything, every possible emotion you can imagine. I mean, digging into his history and celebrating his life and just uncovering one magical moment after another was just, all of it just was so energizing and I just felt so privileged to be accessing so much information on him. I uh, covered the funeral. The Montreal Gazette at the time had uh, an iPad edition, which we did in the afternoon. So it was done sort of around five o'clock or so. And I remember coming back, I left the church uh, early, just as the few, as the sem- as the, the service was ending. And I came back and I was running back through Dorchester Square and I was doing a live hit on CBC television. We had arranged to do this. And the woman on the air said, how was it? How does it look? And I turned and I looked and through the snow, Jean's coffin was coming oh out boy. of the church and uh, Mary, Queen of the World. And I saw just the snow and the lights and it was magical and it was heartbreaking and it was, I, I can't even describe what it was like. And I said, it's absolutely perfect. And I burst into tears on live television and I apologized a dozen times after this woman. And she said, no, the emotion was obviously very raw. But for me, covering all of that, knowing Jean as well as I got to know him in the last 10 years of his life. I, and I'm able to call him Jean now because he, he would kind of kick me in the fanny when <laughs> I didn't because it was Mr. Bellabo always. Yeah. Yeah. And I was sure. sitting down at lunch with him in his home, and I'm pinching myself, driving over to Longay to do this. And I'm sitting, having lunch, and I'm calling him Mr. Bellevue. He said, David, you know me well enough. I'm Jean. And again, I'm Mr. Bellevue. And finally, he said, the next time you call me Mr. Bellevue, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And of course, 30, <laughs> I'm seconds, get later, Mr. Come over here. <laughs> 30 seconds later, Mr. Bellevue, right? And then he, he gets up quietly, walks to the foyer, and the he door. says, come with me. And I walk to the foyer, and he's standing holding my coat. <laughs> and so I knew. And so from that moment on, it was Jean, but I mean, always just sort of with, with the are, utmost respect. Are you in touch with Mrs. Bellevue? I am. He's I stay great. in touch with That's Elise great. quite often. Yeah. She's she's doing great. I mean, she's uh, she's just... Well, she they were the hockey's royal couple. Yeah, she really understood were. in 1953 when they finally moved to Montreal and he signed his first contract in October of 53, played in the All-Star game that night and then was a member of that Canadian's family until his 65th birthday, 64th birthday, I think, when he retired from the front office of the team. I mean, she knew that she was going to have to share her husband with this yeah. city and with this province. And she was always good with that, but anyone who thought that she was a bit of a silent partner. She would always stay one step behind Jean, but she was there for a very good reason. She was the strength, really a a great strength, a great power in that relationship where she would be the one who would say no, where Jean never knew the word no. She would be the one who would say, I'm sorry, but he has seven events this weekend. He can't do the eighth. Similar to Colleen Howe? 
Yeah. 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 Quite, quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know people who hate the Montreal Canadians are going to hate me for saying this, but, and I don't know if it's because I was raised a Montrealer and, you know, um, raised a Montreal Canadiens fan. There is some kind of magic. There's some kind of dust that has been sprinkled on that franchise because I will never forget the pictures. I wasn't there, but that day I said to somebody, how perfect is this with the snow and the cold and the tip of the cap to winter as we said goodbye to Jean Beliveau? Elise Beliveau said it was the perfect day for a yeah, hockey funeral. Yeah, there's, and there's it was. something so. about the franchise that brings brings a little magic to everything surrounding the people that are attached to that franchise. I have a photo of myself standing on the church steps at Mary Queen of the World, and it's probably about half an hour, an hour before the ceremony, and I'm absolutely caked in snow. I'm wearing a wool overcoat. That was not one of the good decisions of my life. Uh, and I'm just totally plastered in snow, and I've never been as cold as that in my life. I went in, sat in the back of the church, and I sort of looked over, and um, I saw Claude Ruel sitting in the back of the church, and he was sobbing uncontrollably. I mean, he just was beside himself. He he was just inconsolable, and Mario Tremblay went over and sort of wrapped him in a big hug and just sat with him and with his arm around him, and people can think what they will, and Mario Tremblay and Patrick Rowe and everything else, but the humanity that I saw that day was something that was just incredible. There, there was, I remember at the time, it was hard to imagine a world without Jean Beliveau. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, and and the wonderful thing about him in this city was that we wore him like a comfortable sweater. I mean, we saw him, he was part of us. We would, you know, we always respected his presence in that, but to travel, to be away from Montreal with him was to be on the road with a rock star. To walk into the Hockey Hall of Fame with Jean Beliveau and to watch fans just literally, I mean, you see them picking their jaws up off the floor. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and they, he would put more people at ease just by a word. And you could be in a room of 500 people with Jean Beliveau and for maybe the 90 seconds that you had alone with yeah. him, you were the only person in that room. Yeah. He looked you in the eye, he addressed you by name, and then he would move on. The next 90 seconds was the next person, but that 90 seconds was 90 seconds he would never forget. And that was innate in him. Mm-hmm. I've met Prince Charles, and you can tell he was trained in how to deal with people. That yeah. was innate in yeah. Jean Beliveau. Well, Jean Beliveau stayed in Quebec City out of loyalty to the population of Quebec. I mean, they pretty much had that had the, the provincial capital rolled out at his feet, and he was being paid as well in Quebec to play for the Quebec, uh, uh, you know, for the, the Quebec Aces as, as he would have been in Montreal. But, I mean, that city embraced him. They loved him, and they did everything in the world to make him happy. And Jean learned lessons from his father. His father said, be loyal to the people who are loyal to you. And everyone sort of knew that he was going to come to Montreal at some point. The Canadians finally bought the Quebec Senior Hockey League so that they could actually get that franchise and move Jean Beliveau to Montreal. But, I mean, he was going to stay in Quebec because he was loyal to the people who were there. And that was, that was going to be very important to him. They don't make them like that anymore. I know that sounds like old grandpa, but they don't make them no, like that anymore. They, they don't. do not. Dave, I can't thank you enough. Um, we've, we've, you've been very generous with your time, kept you for a long time. And I'm sure we could have told a hundred more stories. Um, but well, maybe we'll just have to do it again sometime. Yeah, maybe you, I was just going to say, maybe here's, you would like to come back. Here's the thing of it. I mean, I know that we've 
talked about doing this, I think, and then the pandemic hit. And I'm yeah. not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the Spanish influenza of like 1919. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been, we've been trying to do this for yeah. a while. And it's uh, I have always enjoyed you gentlemen individually and uh, collectively. And Thank it's you. an honor to come and join you today. I've loved this. Well, it's an honor to have you in here. And uh, we'll do it again because I know I know you're not out of stories. <laughs> so long as Ted shows up with a Jag on the driveway, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go for a McLaren next time. That's better. Yeah. The Standing By Podcast. <laughs> yes. Also, the Standing yeah. By Podcast. The no, bo- podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, take with, over. <laughs> with thanks to our friends at UPS Metla Bonheur, uh, Jaguar Land Rover Laval, Voswin, and the folks at Mercen Automotive. And we didn't get to say hi to you at all today. Oh, it's okay. Where have you very, been? Very sorry. You, you got any hockey stories? <laughs> uh, no, but I have an invention for Voswell. Okay. okay. Wait, all right. A can that allows you to get every single drop of your drink. Okay. All right. We'll because work on that. There's always that little That's drop true. at the end. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. true. He's been drinking Red Bull. So. Yeah. <laughs> that explains that. He's all hepped up. Standing by, the Terry and Ted podcast has been brought to you by the UPS Store Canada, delivering more for small businesses in Canada. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.